we're experiencing some very, very cold weather lately. Highs of minus three, feels like temperatures of minus 35. Oh, here's the feels like guy again. The local news ran a, a segment about what you could do with your family when it's cold outside. And they talked about all these things that you could do with your kids and, you know, try to get them to be active and not play video games. You know, the standard kind of fare. Yeah. And then the segment kind of pivots to what you could do as, as an adult. And they talked about all the different local breweries and distilleries in which you could actually purchase their products to go. What else are they going to suggest? Board games, I guess. Which go better when you drink. Watch TV. Nice to do while you're drinking, right? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to episode 210. That's 210 on your dial. This is Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. How you doing? I'm good. It's cold there. <laughs> I'm just having water just for everyone listening in. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was in uh, West Texas uh, over the last few days as of this recording, and uh, it was like 70. Back in Tennessee now, a little bit cooler, but uh, yep, here we are. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. If you have not subscribed, do so. It's one of the best ways uh, that we make sure other people find out about the show. Uh, You can do that wherever you're listening now. Find a streaming device, whatever may make sense. If you'd like to know more about the show, more about this episode specifically, or more about other shows and show hosts on the network, you can do that at touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is our website, houses all the information. And while you're there, sign up for the TPS report. It's a weekly email, comes out every Monday, five stories. That's it. Just five articles aggregated by our show host, keep you up to date on what's going on in the industry, as well as some quick links to things like uh, new episodes from the week before. So we'll pause here, give you a second to go do that, and we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
Should be an interesting episode today, Reed. We have uh, some good topics that we're going to dig into and followed up with a really great interview later on with a, a gentleman who is in the, in the health tech space. And he talks a little bit about health tech and consumables. But before we get to that topic, today we're going to talk about something that often comes up whenever we are interacting with different people that like to use technology in healthcare. And that's this whole concept of should we make it ourselves or should we license it from someone else or build versus buy? You've heard this before, haven't you? Yes. Talk about it all the time. You know, we've worked with several folks over the last few months even on the idea of, of this concept, you know, and usually it's around, you know, marketing technology. So you think about things like intranet solutions or apps, you know, things like that. Buy versus build has, has been a, uh, a common theme over the last several years as we've seen social media technology, consumer adoption of those things really uh, heighten. I love technology and there's nothing better than actually being able to kind of roll up your sleeves and dig in and kind of build a solution together. But there are a lot of pros and cons related to making these types of decisions. And we thought it might be good to bring this up as a topic today to talk through a little bit about this whole concept of buy versus build and how can we as technologists ourselves make some better decisions when it comes to it. A couple of articles that we'll, we'll reference and kind of talk through some of the key themes from them. That's what we're really going to focus in on the first part of the show today is the idea of buying versus building, kind of that framework. The first article that we'll reference, buy versus build, developing the big picture approach from clevertap.com. The second article, should you buy or build software? The answer is both, and that uh, comes from our friends over at Forbes. Our friends. Do I know? <laughs> Forbes. I don't know that I know anybody at Forbes, but it sounds better if I say they're our friends. So let's let's talk about this idea of the framework around buying versus building. Yeah, and I think they start off like many of the things that when we start to talk about it, Reed, is first to identify the problem. Before you even start to make that consideration, you have to identify what you're trying to solve. The first question is like, is this a common problem or is it something that's unique to your organization? We often think that we're so special and unique that we have to create our own custom-built solution. Whereas for those of us that spend time understanding the larger marketplace, Oftentimes, we're not as unique as we think. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes it's specific to the organization. However, maybe it's specific to the industry or the subset of the industry. So healthcare or maybe hospitals in healthcare or what have you. But chances are you're probably not maybe as unique as you think you are. Especially in the hospital space, there's very few people out there that are having a unique problem. There may be some complexities based on your market or, or some sort of demographic uh, type reason uh, or something like that. There's a lot of great resources out there. We'll do a little shout out to Ed Bennett's website too. There are different types of technology that are out there for the marketing space, marketing technology. If you can identify the problem, kind of pinpoint that problem, that's the first step to help you identify how to get down this path of build versus buy. That pretty quickly gets you to the idea of uh, what's this all cost? There's some sort of expense in doing this, buying it or building it. What's your budget? Most of the time, most hospitals that I'm working with do not have a budget specifically to go build a software or some sort of a solution. 
that's why it's easier sometimes to think about this stuff. You know, most of these are a SaaS based product. So you're subscribing to it on a monthly or usually annual basis. Sometimes it's a multi-year discount, If you know, things like that. You think about CRMs, you think about internal communication solutions or intranets, things like that. You're going to buy it or an app even probably a three-year term, et cetera. And while that's expensive and it's expensive over a long period of time, there's probably way more expense, at least up front, in building it yourself. Now, maybe that decreases over time, but at some point, how do we iterate the product? What's the budget? What kind of money do you have to spend on this? That's why we see a lot of technology going into this cloud-based approach, right? Because it does impact the budget significantly. The third element of the framework they say here is to consider your timeline. When you're looking at the problem that you're trying to solve, if it's something that's imperative to solve right away, you have to think about like, well, how fast do we have to move on this? Do we have enough time to invest in developers, for example, building out a scheduling app? Or can we find one off the shelf that will work for us or a call center solution? If you need the solution now, it's really quick. You can try to find something that best meets that category for you and see how you can make it fit. If it's more just like a nagging annoyance, then you can consider a different approach to that, which may be build it yourself in that particular case. Those three things, identifying the problem, looking at your budget, and considering your timeline at a very high level is the framework that can help guide the conversation. But I think you also have to get into understanding kind of the risks and rewards for each. You're either going to build it or you're going to buy it, right? So let's start with building it. And there are some risks involved uh, if you go down that path. The first one is the opportunity cost. So in most cases, especially if you're going to build something like an app or something like that, you're going to pull in your ITNS folks and things like that. So what would they normally have been doing? What are we pulling people away from and using and, and expelling that resource internally that normally would have been spent on other solutions, right? So are we taking people away from their day-to-day or stuff that may be more meaningful? The second is around the quality compromise. If you decide to do it yourself, is there going to be enough resources that you need to see it through to completion, right? And when we say see it through to completion, it's not just building the thing, it's maintaining the thing and keeping the thing up to date over time. That's a lot of time and money and a long-term investment. If additional resources will not be available beyond the scope of the project, you might be better off going into a licensed buy model where you can have other people maintaining it, making sure it's up to date. Along those same lines, quite honestly, technical debt. Uh, I've never heard it said that way. But anyway, it's the lack of talent and finances needed to see a project due to completion. So much like you're talking about, like, can we actually make this happen? What you don't want to do is uh, realize kind of part of the way through the process that we really just don't have the time, the money, the expertise in-house, whatever it is, uh, to really end up solving the problem we set out to uh, tackle. And then the fourth kind of risk that they outline, these two articles we referenced, are uh, that you can look at in our show notes reference, if you're building it yourself, is there an economy of scale? Oftentimes, we, we build very myopically, and that's not you know, not an offense to anyone doing it, but we're trying to solve this problem. Is this also solving the problem of next week or next year? And if you go acquire a new hospital into your health system, can you extend that over that new entity, so to speak, whatever you're looking at? Unanticipated expenses such as these, as well as things like server fees and upkeep fees and all of those things can be a huge, huge burden 
on the cost of this product that you're potentially building your over time. And if I could add a fifth one to the list, and it kind of encompasses all of these, uh, honestly, is you're really working on an N of one. The reason this stuff can uh, scale and the reason that these SaaS uh, vendors have the expertise and you know all those types of things is because they're working and getting feedback in real time from tons and tons of uh, clients and opportunities and instances where you're not. And that's where some of the scaling becomes an issue. Now, on the flip side, there there are risks of of just buying the solution. It's not that this comes without uh, hurdles itself. The first one point out is, um, well, all of your information. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with all the, you know, we think about it in our personal lives, the privacy concerns, the regulations, et cetera. But, you know, who is this third party and how are they going to use our data? Our data is proprietary to us in most, if not all cases. And so do uh, you lose oversight of this? Yeah, just speak to anyone that's migrating from one CRM system to another. This is a big, big concern and consideration. The second risk towards buying is security. We hear about ourselves as hospitals getting attacked by bad actors trying to take over our data. This is all the more prevalent when you get out into sort of a third-party marketplace. You have to look at security best practices, what happens, understand exactly how that third-party organization is managing all of your important data to ensure that there's no compromise in case of, of something that may happen. The next one we'll point out is really two things. The solution that you're buying is not specific to you. It's, it was built based on a lot of feedback, which I said was, you know, some of the upside. It's also some of the downside because number one, well, in most all cases, if not all cases, it's either going to do not quite enough or too much, <laughs> right? From a feature functionality standpoint, let's say it's going to solve 85% of your problems or, or 85% of the need that you were looking for. Or maybe it's way overkill, but very seldom does something line up 100% with what it is you set out to find. And I'm telling you that one about the solution being too broad, like it does too much. That's a thing that I've seen in marketing technology solutions. They're starting to say, well, we could not only do this, we could do this, we could do this. We even alluded to it in last week's episode a little bit about uh, consumer data platforms and CRMs and how they're kind of trying to do both. If you spread the peanut butter too thin on this one, the solution may not do any of the things that you want it to do well. And then the last one, Reed, is an interesting one too. Partners market risk. The market risk of actually coupling with a third-party company. There's a couple of things there. One is, much like we talk about us in, in using rented land, uh, like Facebook, for example, you don't have any control over what Zuckerberg decides to do tomorrow. You don't have a lot of control over what these technology companies are going to do tomorrow. So that could be an acquisition. They could buy something else. They could get purchased. They could go out of business. They could pivot their business model. And therefore, you're on some legacy system that they're not really supporting anymore. There's all kinds of scenarios right here. I've seen it in all in all directions where it's like, well, we really liked this one thing up here, but they don't do that anymore, <laughs> right? A dumb uh, example of this was years ago, everybody loved Basecamp uh, from project management standpoint. And they did away with a, a feature or, a, or the way it was kind of laid out where you had milestones with like dates attached to them and stuff like that. Well, that functionality went away and they kind of restructured everything. 
Well, now it's like, well, my whole workflow is built around this idea of milestones and now they're not there anymore. So multiply that times an, an entire health system as it relates to data and, you know, like a CRM tool or something like that. So, you know, you, again, you're building really what you're trying to do based on someone else's product roadmap. And if they get acquired by someone else, which is, happens often in this space, that causes a whole nother type of conversation, right? That you want to have. Okay. So Reed, after the break, why don't we come back and round out this conversation, then we'll pivot a little bit to another, uh, to that topic uh, about health IT and the internet of things, wearables and all of that after the break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so just to round out this portion of the show, let's talk a little bit about building versus buying as it relates to long and short-term goals. Depending on what you're doing and, and what you're trying to accomplish, there are some logical directions to go on the build versus buy scenario. And when you think about it, it always it gets nuanced, very nuanced. So it's hard for us to share some of these high-level kind of guidance points here. But uh, I think that these are worthwhile, regardless of what your problem is, regardless of what your budget is, regardless of what, you know, what you're trying to actually do or solve, these recommendations kind of play out. The first is, they say, don't cut corners. When it comes to core capabilities, cutting corners or settling for a less than ideal fit can end up being the most costliest option. It's very easy for us to say, hey, well, this kind of fits. Let's kind of fit this in. It'll be a lot cheaper. But if you're talking about core capabilities, something very important to the function of your business, you want to really focus in on making sure that you have the right plan forward. And it might be a hybrid plan in this particular case. Those non-core capabilities like hosting or reporting or maybe like an email system, maybe those things are a lot easier to kind of get to that 80% and meets my requirements level. But for those core things, don't cut corners. Secondly, think about uh, investments, not expenses. So, uh, you know, they talk about the fact that it's, you know, it's important to approach a project in framing the business case in an investment of being made, not an expense. So, for example, uh, replacing a core part of your business with a quick, low-cost solution, they say, may be tempting, but it's short-sighted and often costlier in the, in the long run. Don't just look, well, we only have X amount of dollars per month or this quarter or it's not budgeted or what have you. Uh, again, you're going to end up spending more in the long run. Yeah, I like that concept of like, this is an investment in what you're doing. The third is lengthening your your time horizon. On the build side, that means not just thinking about the actual creation of the product, but also seeing the big picture, how it launches, how do you segment your customers, how are you going to maintain it, right? So don't think of it as like, we're just sprinting to the finish of the product going out the door. Remember, if you're building it, you're in for it for the long haul. 
But on the buy side, it means understanding what vendors are willing and ready to offer that long-term partnership with you. Because if you're investing with someone that's third party, you want to make sure that you have a long-standing relationship with them. Get a good understanding of how their company, their products have evolved over time. Talk to other clients of theirs that have been with them for through the long haul, through the multiple years. That makes a lot of sense. Finally, they talk about remembering the bottom line. Probably half, if not uh, all capabilities can probably be bought. I know they can. Like you could you could outsource everything to some extent, right? But they talk about, you know, not uh, outsourcing components that are core to the business. So were there times that it may make sense to 100% buy or 100% build? It's, it's probably in most, if not all cases, uh, going to be some sort of a hybrid approach. And that's probably true. You know, even those vendors that buy, that sell something very, very succinct, it's usually part of a bigger, like health risk assessments come to mind. You may be buying the health risk assessment, but you're doing it as part of a larger acquisition programmatic type campaign. And so again, it's a little bit of a hybrid, like you're buying pieces and you're, you're executing pieces internally and those types of things. So that's, that's probably more of the right way to think about this. In our industry, when we talk about technology build versus buy, it's impacting all of us. You mentioned at the top of the show, marketing technology is one that we constantly are kind of thinking through. Should we do this ourselves? Should we invest? Another avenue of our industry is health tech and consumables. So why don't we, before we get to our interview, talk about how the Internet of Things which there are a lot of different technologies now out there and healthcare technologies are converging and some of the impacts that might have on how we deliver patient care. The article that we'll uh, touch on here is from readwrite.com and it's IOT and healthcare technologies converge for better patient care. They first talk about, and they kick off talking about the integration of technological advancements and the convergence of emerging technologies and how it's expanded the reach of proactive and preventive care worldwide. So we think about wearables a lot when we think about this, right? The Fitbits, the Apple Watches, those sorts of things. And they also acknowledge that healthcare facilities and the way we're actually tracking health information between hospitals and clinicians and their patients there's a lot of room to improve. We know that Epic is not quite the best tool to track all of our patient records, right? No offense to Epic or any EMR. But we just know that we're getting into a world now where there's a fair number of people that are very interested and invested in their health data footprint. And so now we're starting to see how that's impacting our industry. Quite honestly, most of this is around, uh, if you think about medical device manufacturing, healthcare app development, all those types of things that this article gets into, they talk about the fact, and they're right, that there's been a real shift in the way that these things are, are manufactured and developed in favor of the end user or the patient, right? So you think about like connected scales, you mentioned Fitbit or Apple Watch, things like that. It's really, uh, you know, we're taking into account that end user being an active participant in their care. They actually say that this IoT marketplace, healthcare IoT devices, will grow from 95 million to 646 million over the course of five years. So if you think about that, that's a significant increase. And in our space, how can we as a medical community use these tools to be a little bit more proactive. Do we build them ourselves, Reed? Always. Always build it yourself. (laughs) 
honestly, side note, I think you go back to the things we talked about initially. What are we trying to solve? Has someone already solved this problem or the basically have they already solved this problem? What kind of budgets are we talking about? What kind of expertise do we have in house? You know, those types of things, which we really haven't talked a lot about is that internal expertise. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that, that plays into, uh, plays into account. Yeah. And so with all these, this demand, the consumer demand of internet of things, of wearables and understanding how that's kind of intersecting very closely with health technology, I guess it's important for us to kind of take a step back and understand exactly where there might be some domains in which we can actually focus and and have a greater impact. And they outline in this article three of which that are important to note. First of all, they talk about clinicians getting a concise and a holistic data of your patient's condition. That includes a, a bigger data set, including, you know, other physician data from maybe other competitive health systems in your marketplace or from the Walgreens or the Walmarts or wherever you get your care, but also all that self-reported data as well. So clinicians getting a, a more holistic view, they can also help. They say also healthcare professionals can get a better insight into patient rehabilitation through data. Long-term care, right? How about being discharged with, you know, an Apple watch? That would be an interesting play in the future. Who knows? And then lastly, the third, the third area they say is it's trying to solve that problem of transferring data between healthcare providers. We know that in healthcare and health systems, we build these really great, huge data silos within our health system. And they're very hard to kind of extend that data out. Now, EMRs are trying to cr- create this sort of interoperability of data. But when we talk about data that's being transferred between Internet of Thing devices to a hospital system, it's so easy to transfer that data elsewhere. So potentially a use case here is to facilitate a better transfer of that data. Next thing uh, we'll kind of key in on is is the benefits of IoT-based medical technology in the healthcare sector. So those benefits, and they, they list four of them, the first one being getting share alerts real-time so, you know, most of these things are connected. They work on a 24-7 basis, of course. And you think think about like, you know, alerts for bed sores or heart rate or arrhythmias or, you know, things like that that are being monitored. They also say these things have higher engagement, that people like these devices better. I mean, they're built with the customer in mind. They say using IoT can help improve engagement. And I think that is true. I spend more time with my Fitbit than I do with my glucometer have to say. Cost reduction, another benefit they've got in here that official research has predicted that healthcare-based IoT will reduce healthcare costs by 25% or $100 billion every year. I feel like we're just making up numbers. <laughs> when we say stuff like $100 billion. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's closer to $105 billion. $100 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. And then lastly, telehealth. We can't get through any kind of conversation read about technology without talking about telehealth. They say the telehealth approach has created now a a way that we can best implement and expand on the telehealth platforms. And if you if you don't know what that means, go back a couple episodes when we were talking about the telemedicine tech stack, right? About all the different ways you can use technology in telehealth, and that can help greatly facilitate IoT or the Internet of Things being introduced into our space. They end this article with a very clear caution. You have to take preventative measures, protective measures when you're talking about healthcare data. With everything being connected, well, everything's connected. 
right? And so they talk about the proactive measures being that obviously those in the clinical space or the provider space, you know, have to remain very diligent and vigilant around protecting, you know, this confidential data. And that certainly, you know, with everything being in the cloud, like we mentioned, there's always a risk of a data breach. So uh, it doesn't come without, you know, a word of caution or warning. I don't know how we move this forward without, you know, going down this path. And so those are just things that, you know, will constantly have to be uh, dealt with. And so with that, I recently sat down with Bob O'Dell, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Cardiac Insight. And we talked about how he, being on the health technology side, is seeing these technologies kind of inter- interspersed together, Internet of Things and medical technology. And he also talks about the shifting landscape of the consumer and uh, ways that organizations could start to think about this in a more holistic way. And we'll do that right after the break. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of our podcast. And today I'm delighted to be talking with someone that I just recently got to know. But our initial conversations before this recording really made me excited about the topic that we're going to dive in today. And that is Bob Odell. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Well, we're excited that you're here. I got to know you just recently, but many people listening in may not know about you. Would you mind sharing a little bit brief background about yourself? Sure, absolutely. I am a recovering engineer, having worked in uh, medical devices of all different types for way too many years. I've got uh, some gray hairs around that. Worked in the cardiology segment for many, many years and have enjoyed helping people improve their lives. When we got introduced, we started to talk a little bit about there's this interesting thing that's happening, and I think it's been happening for a number of years now. People are using consumer-facing sort of health and wellness devices, sort of like the Fitbits and the Apple Watches and things like that, and medical devices are actually kind of coming into that space too. So let's talk a little bit about that. What's your perspective on this uh, new space of like wearable devices and health tech? Well, it's really, a, it's really a very, very important part of the coming up with new healthcare uh, continuums of care. The Fitbits, the Apple Watches are often considered patient finders because they find things that are, need further investigation, but they don't tell the complete story. It's important that we have more data than just what we get from a Fitbit or an Apple Watch in order to make a diagnosis or make a treatment decision. But these devices bring patients into the healthcare system in a lot earlier place than they might otherwise be if they were waiting till they actually had a symptom or had time to go to the doctor. Further, there's a whole set of people who are the worried well who are able to check their health from time to time just to be sure that they are haven't developed any additional problems. It's interesting that you describe it as like sort of like an entry point into a healthcare experience because it's just been recently that we started to see that as an opportunity for people that are on the delivery of care. You know, I I remember a couple of years ago I was talking with my doctor and saying, you know, I'm a type one diabetic and I manage my exercise through my Fitbit. And I said, is there a way for me to share that with the patient portal? She looked back at me. We're not ready for that yet. That's not where we're at yet. When you see these these wearable devices and these worried wells starting tracking their their care quite frequently, right? Apple and Google and uh, and the, all these other devices they have so much uh, a better understanding of like sort of the general health of the consumer. What is the gap that's holding us back from syncing that with traditional care data? 
Well, I think we could, there's a couple of barriers that are really uh, slowing adoption. The first is that obviously in medicine, it takes a long time to overcome inertia. There's a certain way that things are done. There are certain uh, luminaries and key opinion leaders who have to speak before people will begin to adopt. At the same time, the tech companies are pushing a great amount of money and a great amount of uh, intellect into finding healthcare opportunities for themselves. And so you have the, uh, the irresistible force and the immovable object uh, reaching each other. And right, right now, you're seeing a consumer is really kind of winning because they're coming in with uh, this kind of information. But the additional barrier is that these devices, such as a Fitbit and the Apple Watch, which I, I think are tremendous devices, are only able to measure certain things. And they're only able to measure them for a limited period of time. And often in order to make a diagnosis, a physician needs more information. They need to, you know, when you go to see your, do your doctor, it isn't just look at your Apple Watch, but they, they poke or they prod or they listen, or they may do an, an additional test. The, the product that we produce is, is, part of, is part of that, where we actually have a longer test that you can do at home than maybe you would do with an Apple Watch or a, or a Fitbit. So we have to have this longer term monitoring or these other parameters we need to look at in order to uh, make the diagnosis. That's part of the change that's going on as wearables become uh, more in-home and become smarter and longer lasting. That's an interesting intersection there because these remote monitoring devices or these remote devices, we're seeing a big trend in consumer electronics in that space too. Apple has introduced the EKG capabilities a few years ago, you know, and even CES this year has a, a number of remote patient monitoring like devices, I would say. Is that, uh, is that a trend that you're seeing as well? Absolutely. Every, everybody wants remote. The, one of the issues, of course, is that we generate a lot of data. And so we have to know what to do with the data. If a device detects a problem in the middle of the night, well, what are we going to do? You know, you're not going to call your doctor and say, what are you doing? You're going to say, let's call 911. So we're generating lots and lots of data. And I think that the next, the next big change that's going to go on is what do we do with all that data? How do, we, how do we give that to the physician in a way that he or she is able to actually use it in some fashion? You know, physicians in an office may have to see 30 patients a day. They're not able to be able to sort through lots and lots of data, you know, to come to a diagnosis. They're going to need the data that they need. And I think that we're going to see more and more uh, consolidation of different types of data coming together uh, using artificial intelligence or using other, other methods to be able to give the doctor the tools to be able to handle a large number of patients uh, efficiently and effectively. I think about all the ways I track my health information through devices. I have a glucometer. I track my, my health information through my Fitbit, etc. These disparate pockets of data together combined can be very powerful insights to, to my healthcare professional. And so I think definitely you, you alluded to this earlier, right? That the consumer is kind of driving the adoption of these tools and, and technologies. Over the last year, there's been a lot of talk about telehealth, remote patient monitoring, and even, you know, at-home care. These are things that are, because of the pandemic, are kind of being thrust upon us. These, How do you see this kind of rapid adoption of these technologies impacting the trends that you're, you're seeing? It's only aiding it. And I think that part of what's really made this possible is the pandemic. I mean, I think if there's anything good that comes out of this pandemic, that's one of those things. And also the recognition that it is a, it is a valid healthcare tool. And that has been shown by reimbursement by our um, 
Medicare carriers and our private insurance carriers in the United States, that really underscores that the, the technology has value and uh, can actually lower costs and increase productivity. It validates, if you will, the, the utility of even, even things as simple as using FaceTime or Skype or any of the other tools just for face-to-face -face interaction. It also provides an additional level of data for the physician to be able to actually talk to someone. But we have the problem of being, being able to plug all your data into that particular type of portal, whether it be ECG data or uh, glucose readings or anything else. How do we plug that into the stream and make sense of it? That makes me wonder too, right? These big technology companies like Apple and Google, Google just acquired Fitbit. These platforms, I'm an Apple guy, right? I have my phone, I have my, my watch, I have you know all of these things. It's kind of ubiquitous in my life now and it makes a natural extension of you know that it could track all of my data. I think that's kind of scary as I say that, right? But that's a kind of a reality, right? It understands all of my behavior much more than let's say you know a remote patient device or what have you. Do you think that high-tech companies have a bigger play in this space or is the, the market going to be a little bit more disaggregate in the future? The, the companies who can look at data really will have an advantage over the long term as soon as they figure out what to do with that data. You know, the, the holy grail in, in monitoring uh, is to know about you from, from your very first breath. If we could monitor your heart or your, or your glucose or, or you know, many, many, many other things throughout your entire life, we would be able to predict with a high degree of accuracy what's going to happen to you later in life and possibly take interventions much earlier at a much lower cost to the healthcare system. But today, we have a lot of disparate data, and we're just developing the, the ways to correlate that data into something that's usable. And then we have to convince in the United States, our insurers, that it's worth using that data. We're not quite there yet. We not only need adoption by the users and the healthcare providers, we need acceptance by those that actually pay for these devices, which are the healthcare insurance companies, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> well, I want to focus a little bit, too, on the actual people using these devices. And so when I say these devices now, it's kind of more of a broad brushstroke, right? I'm, I'm talking about not only the worried well using the fitness and, and health tracking apps, but also those people that are dealing with chronic conditions. Tell me a little bit about your perspective about that healthcare consumer. One of the things that we have to really consider is that the healthcare consumer is not a single type of individual or a single group. Uh, you know, ethnic boundaries, languages, age, uh, cognitive ability, all of these things uh, cross all of the healthcare consumer. So devices and technologies have to be tailored in such a way that they can be used by a large number of people. And that's no, that's no small task, whether it be applying a monitor or operating a, a Fitbit or a, a smartphone or some other type of device. It really is a, a, broad, a broad swipe at the uh, population. And for the medical device manufacturers, the people using or developing the technology, they have a real challenge to make it usable because a physician or the healthcare system can't support multiple channels, you know, so that every patient you talk to, you talk to through a different channel in a different tool in a different way with different data. That's simply not sustainable. It's not lost on me, too, that many of these uh, technologies and, and the things that we're talking about are available to a certain subset of our of our population, right? And often when we look at where the most critical need is, it's in populations that maybe do not have the ability to access these tools. Well, that's true. There are a lot of underserved communities, whether it be in terms of high-speed access or smartphones or, or others. 
But, you know, that is, it shouldn't be a reason why we don't go after as many of the population as we can to bring the technology to them. You know, because we are unable to do everyone doesn't mean we shouldn't do someone. That's key. But I think there are other initiatives that we can ride on that are trying to bring high-speed internet access and smartphones to schools and other things that will allow more and more adoption of the technology. It's not something that occurs overnight, but over a period of a uh, number of years, I think it'll become more ubiquitous than it uh, is today. You actually run a company that does create a medical device, right? The Cardiac Insight device. That's correct. I'm curious, as you sit on that side of the fence, right? It's easy for me to speculate about like the consumer aspect of this, but from the perspective of the the industry that's creating new devices, what are some things that you're taking to, into account as you're developing new solutions and, and, and new ways to help solve this problem? Well, the first thing we have to do is figure out you know, where we fit. And, you know, we have done that. We build a monitor that instead of monitoring for 30 seconds, it monitors for seven days and that someone can wear at home and do their normal activities. So we can get a real look at their heart in their, in their home environment, doing what they normally do, whether it be, uh, you know, working out or walking or doing nothing, we at least have a, a look at them. And that provides an additional amount of, amount of data that that the doctor can use and, and does use regularly. We make sure that our data can fit somewhere in the data stream and that we can send these devices to people at home, that they can self-apply them. So we have to make sure that it's simple to use and we have instructions that are easy to follow in multiple languages. Then we have to make sure that when the doctor gets the data back, that they can use that data and it's in a familiar form and it's that, it's, that we've done enough human factors work to make the doctor productive with our particular set of data. And now those are things that us as a, as a software company have, have worked very hard on. We really look at, you know, the new technologies coming on as, as patient finders because nobody gets prescribed, a, you know, a major pharmaceutical or, or some medical procedure based on a 30-second strip but they could based on a seven-day monitor in our, in our particular case. So we know that we fit, but, and we certainly embrace the technology of reaching out to the patient and helping to acquire more data and bringing that data back to the physician. And you kind of have a unique vantage point, I would say, that more so than maybe these you know, companies that are, are doing consumer health devices, right, in that you actually know the back end. You know what, what that data interoperability would look like. You, you kind of understand some of those challenges. I think about this as I kind of look at through the latest technologies that are available through Consumer Electronics Show or whatever. These are great, but they seem like disconnected. They seem like devices that are out there kind of hanging out there and not really connected to the overall ecosphere. I love this idea of a patient monitoring device that is with you and monitors you continuously over a period of time. Because quite frankly, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm just measuring pinpoints of activity throughout my day, even with my Fitbit. Yeah, and you are. And, and that's, that's really one of the limitations of our current devices. You know, there just simply aren't big enough batteries or small enough devices to wear continuously and, and bring that data. And there's, the, of course, the, in the Internet of Things, that data can be streamed to somewhere, but it really isn't actionable. And so part of the, the big challenge and the challenge for the companies who are trying to aggregate the data is to make the data actionable. I think, as you pointed out, they're becoming more and more sources of data, but, less, but there still aren't a lot of actionable data that's being created. And I think that's the next big challenge that's going to go on for uh, you know, some of the big data people. Certainly, Google is in a position to do that, but that, that comes with other issues around privacy and access to your own data.
Yeah, privacy is always sort of that hidden specter of all of this, right? And that I actually just saw some recent studies that said that the trust that consumers and patients have is still very much strong with their care provider, their doctor, their nurse, even their pharmacist. Yet the trust for these big tech companies is starting to erode over time because of all of these other areas in which, you know, Google and Apple and dare I even say like, you know, Facebook is a high tech company or Amazon because they know so much other things about you. And I think that the the general consumer and patient population starts to uh, keep an eye on that in a very wary way, right? They're, they're, they're not sure if, if they want to use, you know, if, if Google was to introduce a remote patient cardiac device, for example, I'm not sure what the adoption rate would be of consumers. I think there would be some fear Clearly, we're seeing in the United States some backlash against, uh, you know, to use the, the term now, big tech, who has a lot of data and can track you for, for advertising purposes. If they, if they know you buy a lot of health things and you may have a particular cardiac condition, could they target you even more for particular advertising or share that information in a way which is not the way you want it used? And th- that's certainly a concern. So I think there is a, a roadway or a pathway where data gets shared, like in our case, only with the physician, uh, your physician, where you still have trust, and doesn't pass through uh, the big the big data aggregate types. I think that's going to be a, a portion of it. While tech tries to restore some, um, you know, some credibility that any data they collect won't be used, you know, for advertising or any nefarious purposes. Over the holidays, I got a really big advertising push about the Amazon competitor of Fitbit, right? And they were just sending me all of these advertisements that I should get one, right, and purchase one. And the whole time, I'm like, I'm get, becoming more and more soured about it because to my, in my mind, I'm thinking they just want me to have another data point about me so they could sell more product to me. And so I think that becomes a very interesting uh, kind of landscape as we look forward to this, this world of medical devices and, and consumer health devices. Well, digital marketing, you know, to the consumer, unfortunately, is too inexpensive. And I think particularly during the pandemic, we're all getting way too many, uh, you know, we're getting overloaded with uh, offers to buy just about anything and everything. But those that seem highly targeted always make you feel just a little bit strange, knowing that they came from some other piece of your data uh, is always always makes you a little worried. It, you know, if you start receiving, in your case, if you started receiving targeted advertisements for type one uh, diabetes products or drugs, uh, you you know where that came from, and you know you just kind of you kind of wonder what else or or what's next. And then if you receive one for something else, you wonder how that might be related. So that that really, that's really a, a challenge. But at the, at the same time this goes on, I really think it's important to point out that these consumer devices and all the companies trying to create data are, are actually doing the healthcare system a favor because they're raising awareness of not only general health, but key arrhythmias in the case of the heart or key disease states that are uh, something that we can actually treat. It's really important. Early identification of many, many types of disease states allows us to fix it, allows us to, people to live a normal life and, and not the healthcare system. So that extra awareness is really a huge benefit, but it does it does come at some cost to the healthcare system of extra data and the worried well and the, the people who are just flooding the, the system with information that they really yet don't quite understand. 
you know, what you just said made me re-envision what the future might be. You know, I always try to envision what it could be. And, and I think, you know, there's this inherent conflict between companies such as yourselves that are doing re- remote patient monitoring devices or remote monitoring devices, and then the high-tech companies. But, you know, it, it's almost like you're, you're, you just painted a, a new world where these things can play together, right? Where you have the prosumer who's out there using these devices that can be indicators of potential health needs and then a more of a controlled intervention with a remote device, so to speak, in a healthcare setting. Is that kind of what you see as the future too? The interventions are going to be a tough problem to solve, not only from a technology perspective, from but from a regulatory perspective. I mean, we have uh, we have the the FDA, which does an excellent job of overseeing medical devices, and doing remote therapies is a is something that's really difficult to uh, to understand and control. But certainly, the the diagnosis will move closer and closer to the patient for longer and long longer and longer periods of time. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see that, especially as we look at data that happens over over a period of years. Certainly, if we could, in in your particular case, if we could look at your data in over a period of ten years, we could probably make a pretty good prediction about the next ten years. And if there's something to be done today to make the, the you know to extend your life or to extend your quality of life, you know, we would certainly do that. Through the course of this conversation, I um, am now seeing things a little bit different, right, in terms of the future. And I think that this is a little bit more of an optimistic picture that I have. So I appreciate that perspective, Bob. This is a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. You know, people listening in may want to continue the conversation with you. What are some ways they can reach out to you online? They could certainly reach uh, reach me on LinkedIn as R.W. Odell. My company, Cardiac Insight Incorporated, we're on Twitter and our, and our website is cardiacinsightinc.com. We're happy to engage uh, through Twitter or Facebook uh, through the company and, and, and continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll put all of that in the, sh- in the show notes. So people listening in, encourage you to reach out to Bob online. Bob, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it and your insights and your perspectives on things. I appreciate the opportunity, Chris. Healthcare is, is exciting and important for, for today and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for your time. All right, special thanks to one Bob Odell for coming on the podcast, talking a little bit about IoT, Bill versus Buy, all the kind of fun stuff that uh, we've talked about today. This is a, it's an interesting episode. It's not specifically marketing on the nose, uh, although it's things certainly that we deal with and think through. And as we've talked about the blurring lines between uh, quality and marketing and IT and marketing and operations and marketing and, and these types of things over the years, certainly we're going to be pulled into more and more of these conversations and need to be a part of them as well because we're going to be the owners and executors and sponsors for a lot of this type of uh, technology. So good topic we'll continue to touch on. Again, uh, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening. We'd love the support. Uh, certainly head over to the website, sign up for the TPS report and uh, check out our friends over at Binary Fountain that have a, a great on-demand series of webinars uh, that may uh, get your year off to a good start. Let's do some recommendations. Okay, Reed, I'm going to recommend a game for your phone that I downloaded this weekend. And when I downloaded it, I have to say, as I was downloading it, I thought of you. Okay. This game is called It's Literally Just Mowing. And what it is, is you are in charge of a guy on a, on a lawnmower. You're sitting on a lawnmower. And basically, you mow lawns. That's the game. Nice. I like it. 
So let me let me read a little bit of the description, right? Leave your worries behind and enter the calm, simple world of mowing. Love nature, love mowing, love the simple life. Find it as your mower turns troublesome turf into backyard bliss. Literally, what you're doing is going house to house and just mowing the lawn. There's no like time limits. You get some rewards and you you, you unlock different things and you can upgrade your mower as you go along. But literally, there is nothing more to it than just mowing the lawn. It's very calm, very serene. And I have to say that I downloaded it and I've played quite a few levels in just one day because it's just so addictive. You're just sitting there mowing lawns. I'm going to recommend it for anybody looking for for something. If you want to just pass the time, um, go download the app. It's called It's Literally Just Mowing. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a 4.8 rating. Like who didn't rate it five? (laughs) Like it's really just in the name of what's happening here. But anyway. Um, okay, I'm going to recommend uh, an app called Clubhouse. Oh, do you have a Clubhouse account? Are you on? Are you on Clubhouse? It's an invitation-only audio chat social networking app. What? Yes, it was launched in 2020, and as of December 2020, it was valued at 100 million. On January the 21st, the valuation hit 1 billion dollars, and I'd never heard of it. Like, what? What is happening? With I don't even know what's happening in this space, but I now have a Clubhouse account and I don't really know what to do with it. So if anybody's on Clubhouse and uh, basically like I could drop in there and start a room, almost like I walked into a room at a conference and just went up front and started talking and the people could like come in and listen. It's great if you're Elon Musk. I'm just not sure anybody cares to hear me talk on Clubhouse, but... Um, yeah. So Clubhouse, if you're on it, let me know. Wow. Uh, do you need a special invitation to get on it? Yeah, apparently. Well, hello, Reed. Hook a brother up here. Okay. Yeah, I'll send you, <laughs> I'll send you an invite. Maybe we'll start doing the show on Clubhouse. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, there you go. Another episode in the books, 210, checked off the list. Thanks again for uh, tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. If there's topics we should cover, if there's people we should interview, please let us know. Uh, We're doing this uh, because you all listen. So we continue uh, to see the numbers and the listenership grow, and we certainly appreciate all the support. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.